Welcome once again to Benchwork, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at AC Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund, and Associate Professor for Entrepreneurial Finance and Venture Capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn, and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. Today we have a great speaker, Jonathan Lee. Jonathan, thank you so much for being today with us. Thank you so much for having me and hola everyone. <laughs> Jonathan is from Rice. He lives in Singapore. But first of all, why don't you tell us a little about yourself, Jonathan? Yeah, hi. My name is Jonathan and uh, thank you again to Hector for inviting me to this uh, great session. Um, so actually, I'm, I, I had a short stint in Singapore, but I'm now living in Malaysia. Um, so I'm with an organization called RISE um, and people always get us confused with a very big um, tech conference out of Hong Kong, also named RISE, but we are not uh, affiliated to them. Uh, we are a corporate innovation firm. Um, so in a nutshell, what we do is we offer corporate venturing as a service um, to uh, government organizations, to public listed companies and international MNCs that are based in Southeast Asia. Um, so services that we offer can range from, you know, as simple as training their internal talent on innovation practices uh, to helping them set up, say, uh, innovation teams, uh, venture building teams. Uh, and, and we are also now going into helping some of our clients look at corporate VC funds. Um, a little bit uh, about myself. I, I spent half my life in Malaysia and the other half growing up in New Zealand. Um, and, and worked in many different uh, industries. I started out in uh, training and got into incubation by accident. And from there, I was hooked on the startup ecosystem. Um, and then I was invited to come home to my home country, Malaysia, to help uh, set up uh, one of the early stage government funding firm called Cradle Fund. Uh, and Cradle Fund is uh, attributed to seeding um, many very successful tech companies in Southeast Asia, including a unicorn company called Grab. Uh, if you've uh, not heard of it, you can actually Google Grab. Um, and Grab started off in Malaysia and was funded by Cradle. And I was, work I was part of the team that actually looked into this particular deal. Uh, subsequently, I had a couple of uh, career changes. I was in a public listed company um, as a head of BD, where I also managed their CVC arm. I was um, uh, in. Then I went back into government to help uh, the Malaysian government uh, nation build more entrepreneurs. Um, so Malaysia today have probably around two and a half to five, two and a half to three thousand startups um, that are active. Uh, the numbers is not very big, but we're still trying to push it uh, as a nation to try to hit uh, what is uh, known as critical mass of about 5,000 startups. Um, then subsequently, I left that role to join RISE, which is now 
um, a role that I enjoy. Uh, the difference between my previous role and this role is, is basically the opposite side of the same coin. Instead of me working with startups and accelerating startups, I'm now working with corporate to accelerate corporates. But a lot of times we leverage on the capabilities and the solutions from tech companies and startups. So that's the nutshell, I guess, uh, introduction about myself. Wow, that's that's amazing, Jonathan. You have done too many things and you have worked in too many places. It's it's great. So you understand, you know, very deeply venture capital. So let's start with the beginning. Uh, obviously, how would you describe venture capital? I I, I would see it as a uh, economic enabler, right? So in the most innovative ecosystem around the world, um, especially the most developed, they have a very healthy VC ecosystem because the VC uh, are supposed to be taking the highest risk at the earlier stage to actually catalyze more uh, entrepreneurs to start businesses. So if you look at any healthy ecosystem with a strong uh, economic presence, usually there is a very strong VC presence. So if you look at a, a region like Southeast Asia, I would say that our, our VC ecosystem, although it's been around for about 20, 25 years, is still very nascent uh, because it's only concentrated in two big markets. Singapore, uh, because it's the default financial hub of Southeast Asia, and Indonesia, because it's the largest market in Southeast Asia. The rest of the countries, like the country I'm, I'm based in, in Malaysia, we probably have about 30 to 50 active VCs, uh, which is not a lot comparing to, to a place like uh, Singapore that has easily a couple of hundred uh, active VCs uh, uh, over there. So, so we're still trying to build the VC ecosystem. It's, it's critical if we are to push for more startups to be developed in Malaysia, we need them to be able to access this risk capital. So, so to me, I think VC is a, a critical component and, a, and also an economic enabler Right? A lot of people don't see this, but without the VC seeding these startups, there won't be other spin-off effects like employment. Right? So, so those, are, those are important things that when I talk to uh, my government here in Malaysia, I, ex I have to explain this to them to, to make sure that they can also play a role in um, spearheading and growing the VC uh, industry in Malaysia. I agree with you. At the end, the VC, it's a system and and it need it need to it need it it really needs to work perfectly as a system. Otherwise, it just fails. And what would yeah. you say it's more difficult, being an entrepreneur or being a VC investor? I think being a VC is easy. Being an entrepreneur is going to be very challenging. Um, and and I've run so many accelerators in in, in my in my time previously enough to know that there is no one way to succeed as an entrepreneur. I have invested in companies that I will, I'm willing to bet uh, my life that they are going to be successful that have failed. And I have written off companies that I think will fail that have succeeded. So I think there's no one, a lot of people, a lot of times they ask me like, look, you know, what are the recipe for success in any startup? There's actually no one recipe for success, right? It is, there's so many macro environment, macro factors that have to be taken into account to allow for companies to be successful. 
if you are at the right place at the right time and you may not even have the right skills, you can succeed, right? And, and recently, I, I, I had a good chance of meeting uh, Rappi's uh, CEO, um, uh, Andres, and he was telling me when he jumped from consulting into uh, entrepreneurship when he started his, his startup, he didn't know anything. He didn't know what he was doing. Uh, but he kept on pushing forward. Every time he had a challenge, he failed, he fixed it, and he moved forward. He failed. So he was telling me that he failed so many times, like for by normal standards, they would have should have given up, but they didn't. They just persevered. And now Rappi is like a, a, a huge, uh, successful um, startup in, in you know, Latin America, and they're expanding to new markets, right? So, so I think being an entrepreneur is actually very challenging. Being a VC, I think it's slightly more easier, <laughs> partly because I've actually been in a VC role myself. So I think being a VC role, I, I really enjoy it. And I've also been an entrepreneur. And I tell you that I struggle being an entrepreneur. Being a VC role, I'm constantly meeting with very intelligent uh, people who are way smarter than me. And they are sharing with me things that I don't know. Things about the industry, things about the problem, uh, the solution that they're developing. I'm actually learning a lot from this entrepreneur. So a lot of times I think the entrepreneurship journey is one that is, um, and only a select people can actually overcome these uh, uh, challenges and persevere and, and go through it. So for me, I would say being an entrepreneur is, is more difficult than a VC. So if being an entrepreneur, it's tougher than being a VC investor, what, are there any requirements or skills that someone needs to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, so we, I also get, and over the years, I think my, my um, answers have kind of evolved and changed based on my own experience. I used to think, I used to think that there are uh, a very, very strong team, right? So the founders themselves have to be strong, resilient, and you need to surround yourself with incredible hires, especially the first few employees of the company uh, to develop the right solution for the problem. So that's, that's number one. Number two, I used to think that business model is critical, right? Having the right business model, the right market fit uh, is important to ensuring that, you know, you get generate cash flow into uh, your organization. And number three, you need access to capital. So you need funding, right? Because without funding, you're not going to last very long. Uh, you know, there's always going to be, you know, the death valley that you have to overcome. So that's what I used to think, right? But coming back to what I was saying before, um, even though a company or startup have these three very critical factors and it does reduce the risk of failure, it doesn't guarantee success. It just doesn't, right? There's so many other factors. Sometimes there are factors that we don't even see and is beyond our peripheral view that is going to be disrupting us. So a lot of times, you know, um, you know, I tell the team, you know, is, you know, when you look at solving a problem, make sure you focus on the problem, not the solution, because solution can evolve and change. Uh, so don't fall in love with the solution, really fall in love with the problem and make sure that you have a really strong uh, problem solution fit first, then after that product market fit. Right. And, and that will lead on to you having a business model that can, that can possibly work and generate the type of revenue you want to see. 
So, so that would be my, I think, uh, very short answer. Uh, again, I don't know whether that uh, address the, the question or not. If you ask me maybe five years ago, uh, uh, the same question, I will tell you the three top things are the team, your right, uh, you know, product market fit and business model and, and access to capital. And that's, that was what I hold true when I was designing accelerator programs for the Malaysian government. Uh, but after running like six cohorts, seven cohorts, I realized that, hey, you know, at the end of the day, you can reduce the risk. But again, there's no guarantee for success. No, I, I completely agree with you. Obviously, there's a lot of factors, you know, to be successful with a startup and, and venture capital. But, but first of all, how do you come up as an entrepreneur with a business model? What are, what are the key steps in order to frame the, the business model? So I personally use a business model canvas. I don't know whether you guys have, have used it. Uh, and it's a very common tool. Uh, and again, depending on uh, which sort of like um, um, maturity the startup is, you can use different type of canvases like value proposition canvas and whatnot, right? So, uh, so personally, I use a business model canvas to uh, allow me to kind of get a bird's eye view of where are the opportunities that I could capitalize on. In Southeast Asia, when uh, we started running um, the accelerator program, um, especially where we had a lot of uh, startups that are B2C, a lot of times uh, they are focused on two uh, business models, uh, the user pays and uh, user pays, which includes subscription and also ad revenues. Um, what I've seen uh, is, uh, you know, the best startup actually focus less on these two, but focus on ancillary multi-prongs revenue streams coming into the business. Now, how do we find out uh, this kind of strategies? From using a tool like, for example, Business Model Canvas, you are given a sort of like a, a wider peripheral view. So a lot of times when entrepreneurs are working on a business model, they have a solution that solves a problem and it may belong to a specific user. They will just charge the user, right? So that's the most straightforward uh, standard business model. Uh, but the smartest uh, entrepreneurs that we've seen is, hey, they can actually charge the, the user, but they can't charge it beyond a certain amount due to price sensitivity. So a lot of times this company, what they do is they build Uh, multiple uh, partnerships that allow them to tap into unseen revenue streams, especially those that can tap into your network or database of users. So, so what we like to do in our accelerator programs and, and you know, our accelerator programs previously, and this is not, not my current company, but my previous company had around 40 to 60% month of month growth, Uh, average. So 40 to 60% bearing in mind that these startups are very early stage. They are seed stage startup, right? So 40 to 60% month of mind growth is, is pretty good. So for those companies that are doing really well in excess of um, uh, the, the 60% month of mind growth, especially in the 100, 200%, these guys have, uh, you, you know, uh, strategize on a multi-revenue uh, stream coming in. So this type of business model we think are really relevant in a place like Southeast Asia where people are more price sensitive. And, and how they come up with it is because we also run a business model canvas a workshop for them. 
And then in the discussion on, on uh, areas of partnerships and revenue, that's where they can now decide, hey, I can do you know, subscription, I can sell ads, I can charge our partners for distribution, uh, we can do uh, co-curation uh, or co-collaboration or co-development of new products and services uh, that will allow for new revenue streams to come in. Um, so again, I, I hope that answers the question and it's not super confusing. No, absolutely. It does, it does answer the question. And you have been investor as well. Obviously, you're, you're telling us, hey, you know what, you should be using business model canvas and so on. And as an investor, what, what do you typically see or try to look when you analyze business model? So I personally like to see two things. So as I mentioned, I like to see any startup that has more than one revenue stream, right? So if you are a one revenue stream startup, then you live and die by that revenue stream. So I like to see a, a startup that can have multiple revenue streams um, that can, can, if so one revenue stream is wiped out due to whatever reason, then you have the other revenue streams to rely on. So that's, that's number one. Number two, I like startups that have created moats. Um, and and moats is just a barrier. It's a very fancy word of a barrier to entry to a specific market or given, or it could be also Lucy said as a, a very strong value proposition that, that other companies may not have. And, and sometimes it could be, you know, IPs, uh, it could be certain uh, copyrights or patents. Uh, but at very early stage, usually startups don't invest in, in protecting themselves via these activities because they are very expensive or can get very expensive. But the modes itself could be certain uh, way or processes that they are executing that other people may not be doing it at the moment. So uh, in, in Malaysia, for example, uh, I mentioned Grab and, and Grab is a, is a classic example of having multiple revenue streams. Right, so they, they do offer a variety of different services. Uh, and what they've done is from their database, they have diversified it into multi products and uh, solution that is being offered to both the consumer as well as to the merchants. So they're actually earning from both sides, the, 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 the people who are using the services and the merchants who are providing these products and services. And this is something that we really, really like uh, uh, when we look at investment is to look at a company that have this kind of protectionism as well as multiple revenue streams. And then, of course, there are all other factors, things like, you know, hey, you know, the team as well, whether the team are, you know, people who have actually had experience running businesses, um, you know, whether the, the people are easy to deal with, whether there's a culture fit and it, it's so important to also find companies that that are run by really good founders because you you do get uh, certain startups where the, the founders are so-called assholes, uh, if you don't mind my French, uh, assholes, uh, where even though they are great companies, you are going to have a tough time managing them because they're just going to be so difficult. Um, you're just not going to have any time to do anything else. Um, so when we're looking at investments, we'll look at a, a variety of different criteria. I have a checklist um, uh, when I go through a, a selection uh, of different things that I want to see. And, and most often, we don't get companies that will take off, you know, all of the 10 on list on my checklist. 
uh, they may hit eight at the highest or they may hit, you know, five or six. So uh, if they do, if they do hit around five or six, it is actually a group discussion with my fellow investors to see whether we can add value to these companies. And if we can add value to these companies by helping them grow and scale, then we are more willing to also bet on these companies. So let's assume, for instance, you have the entrepreneurs, you have a bunch of good entrepreneurs, they, they, they come up and, and do the business model canvas. So what would you recommend that team in order to kick off, in order to really launch the startup? Because a lot of times, entrepreneurs, they just spend too much time kind of strategizing. And, and how do you move on and, and, and really make things happen? Um, so, so a lot of times we tell um, our entrepreneurs and, and we do also teach them uh, design sprint um, uh, as well as design thinking. So we tell them not to focus on the solution as much as the problem, right? And, and when you get down to the crux of it, especially when an entrepreneur or a group of founders are building their MVP, um, of course, the ideal is to have a solution get, that can solve everything. But to go to market, you may have to sacrifice the bells and whistles. You just need to be able to solve maybe one to three key pertinent problem in the problem set. So understanding the problem, being able to define the problem clearly allows you to do that. So we tell the entrepreneurs a lot of the time, your MVP just need to solve this. It doesn't have to look fancy. It doesn't have to look great. It doesn't need to have all the other things that makes necessarily the user experience ideal, but focus on solving this. So we, a lot of times we teach the entrepreneurs to be just focused on and loving the problem rather than the solution. Because a lot of entrepreneurs, when they go and pitch a VC, they talk about their solution. The solution is that. It's wonderful, it's great, it's world-beating, right? Um, they don't spend enough time educating the, the VCs about the problem. So we, we spend a lot of time you know, training our entrepreneurs to, to love the problem, to understand the problem, to be able to define it clearly and then build an MVP for it. Uh, and, and from there, then you can scale. So Grab, for example, right, when they came to us, they weren't solving a transportational issue, right? So the problem that they were solving wasn't one of transportation because there were already taxi services, right? Uber was already coming into Malaysia, right? So they weren't really solving that. The problem that they were solving is actually safety for public transportation because in Malaysia, I don't know in, in, in Latin America, I haven't had the uh, opportunity to visit, but in Malaysia, we used to have, you know, uh, taxi drivers that would rip uh, people off. Like they would just simply charge the passenger. They would uh, assault to some extent. There were cases where taxi drivers actually assault the passengers And, and uh, the female population in Malaysia actually don't like to take taxis on their own because of all these issues, right? So they were actually really solving that problem. When they came to us, they said, hey, look, there's a security issue in public transportation in Malaysia, and we are actually developing a solution to address that. And over time, it became something else. It became a competitor to Uber, As they scale, then uh, they went into food delivery, they went to groceries. Now they are in um, uh, e-wallets, payments, as well as insurance. But when they first started, this was the problem that they solved. 
So being able to understand and define the problem and love the problem and create your MVP to solve that problem will essentially uh, lead to a problem solution fit then a product market fit. And then from there, you can build a stronger business model around it. So as an entrepreneur, obviously you are investing time, you're investing money. And, and when do you know, hey, you know what, let's keep on going or hey, you know what, let, let, let's cut our losses and let's stop the project. This is a very difficult uh, question, uh, Hector. And the reality is you don't know when. You just don't know. So it's a very subjective call uh, among the, the founders. So, <clears throat> um, so I, the third venture I started was in a pharmaceutical space. Um, so I was in charge of the BD. So I was uh, essentially designing um, the business model, <clears throat> excuse me, getting in the, uh, the pioneer uh, beta clients, uh, you know, working on the, 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 the user experience and user flow and the processes. Uh, but being in a pharmaceutical space, my co-founder was a pharmacist. So he, uh, she understands the intricacies of the legal side. So we were getting a lot of early stage uh, uh, momentum and this was going back uh, maybe eight years ago. We were getting a lot of early stage momentum. We were indirectly uh, breaking the law because in Malaysia, you're not allowed a online pharmacy, uh, but we, we were providing online uh, uh, pharmacy services, but not, but we don't call ourselves an online pharmacy. Uh, because we are kind of like Uber. So we don't own any pharmacy. We don't own um, our inventories of drugs, but we work with uh, pharmacists and we work with wholesalers to be able to get the drugs or medication you need at the best price delivered to you as and when you need it, right? And of course, we have the proper uh, structure in place. Um, so we raised our uh, seed round from a couple of angel investors and we were en route to raise our Series A. And then lo and behold, my co-founder actually got offered a job in a big hospital to become the head of the pharmacist there. So being an entrepreneur, we were not drawing any salary. Uh, it was already six months, sorry, eight months into the business. We were, we were scaling, but not as fast as we wanted to. We were fine tuning the business model because as, as a, a, an intermediary between pharmacies and the clients, we are taking a commission, uh, uh, which is very, very low because drugs are controlled, uh, prescription drugs are controlled by the government. So we can't simply charge them. So we were getting a very low commission. So long story short, when the offer came in to, to my co-founder, she took it. She took the, the, the opportunity without discussing with the two other co-founders. So uh, the other co-founder and myself, and then only told us about it in our uh, catch up meeting. Right. Uh, so because that had happened immediately, the three co-founders uh, started arguing with each other. And, and after that the, uh, argument, uh, we all went away and strategized on our own. And, and myself included, I'm guilty as well. So I went away thinking, uh, how can I salvage, how can I out this uh, uh, founder and, and salvage the business, right? Because the co-founder or the, my, my pharmacist co-founder had taken on the job but didn't want to give up her equity in the business. Um, so she wants to maintain an equal uh, shareholder in the business, uh, uh, but not running the business, but 
going to for a full time role, but still maintaining that. So long story short, although we were groundbreaking at that time, uh, we had decided to to shut down the company because the three co-founders just couldn't agree after that that uh, incident had happened. Um, a lot of people ask us, "Wow, you could have leave and then just started your own business and 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 you know run with it," but it wouldn't have worked because I'm not a pharmacist. I don't have subject matter expert in the industry. Uh, so long story short, we shut down the business not because of business model, not because of the solution, because we had people issues, founder issues, and a lot of time this is one of the major. Each, uh, contributors to the the startups being shut down, you know. People may say it's business model. People may say is is you know uh, product solution fit or product market fit, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, in Malaysia, what I see is the nine out of ten are people issues among the founders. So for you guys, when is it the right time to cut the the or and save or call it quits to to cut the losses? It's a matter of what situation you are in, right? I, I mentioned about the Andres where I met him and, and he was telling me his story in Rappi. To me, when he was telling me the story, anyone would have quit at the very beginning based on the challenges that he had. But he just persevered. He just muscled through it, right? And one thing I noticed, he spoke uh, very highly of his two other co-founders, Simon, and and one other co-founder who was a lady who was in charge of fundraising, they said no matter what we were we were like like a family right throughout all the problems we were like a family and we were able to overcome all the challenges that that was thrown to us when they were fundraising it was so funny and they say the first time we saw the pitch deck we say so to quote him and he was swearing a little bit fuck we are gonna we're gonna die. <laughs> because the pitch deck was just so bad, right? But after 15 times of practice, he said, after the 15 times, we are starting to see the light. We're starting to see that, hey, we can, we can potentially raise our, our fund and allow us to now scale. So then they, they did successfully raise their fund and went on to scale beyond their own market. So, so there's no right or wrong uh, in, in you know, deciding to quit or deciding to continue on. Again, it's all very circumstantial. Um, if I was Andreas, I'll probably have quit <laughs> already, but he had persevered and kudos to him. Uh, Rappi is now a big success in Latin America. Absolutely. And you also advise corporates. What mm. are your thoughts about entrepreneurship? becoming an entrepreneur inside the corporation. Oh, I love you. You brought that up, Hector. That's what we advocate for a lot of uh, our corporate clients who are thinking about the venture building path. Um, because uh, corporates in Southeast Asia, they tend to just stick within their own industry. Um, but you, when you look at the largest, the top 10 conglomerates in Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, Indonesia, they are highly diversified. And partly because they have individuals within their organization that are spinning off new business opportunity, new business models that allow them to capture another adjacent market. Uh, so we, we talk about that a lot. And a lot of the programs that we run at RISE is, is to actually help, you know, empower uh, these talents within the corporates to be able to build uh, their own um, business opportunities within the corporate environment. 
Um, so, so that's what we push for. And when you look at even like, for example, coming back to Grab, um, uh, and Grab will tell you, if you speak to the founders today, uh, Anthony, Hui Ling, uh, Cheryl, they will tell you that their organization is highly entrepreneurial, right? They are always thinking, what can we do next? What can we launch next? You know, what, how can we improve the user experience? You know, um, that's why they've been able to diversify into so many other products and services uh, a way ahead of their competitors, right? So Grab in Malaysia anyway has actually been delivering and testing delivering food even before Uber Foods came to Malaysia. So, so they were already way ahead of the curve and, and, and they spent a lot of time also localizing, localizing uh, to the key market. So unlike Grab where they send, uh, uh, sorry, unlike Uber where they send uh, what is known as country launches, and these country launches may come from anywhere, from US and whatnot. They are based in the country for six months and they launch the business there. Grab doesn't take that, that strategy, right? What Grab does is they go in and they find a local entrepreneur and then they work with that local entrepreneur to launch services into, into the, that specific key market. So it's built with a local market in mind. Uh, so similar uh, uh, strategies to some of the corporates that we work with, we also advocate this, right? Especially uh, public listed companies who are thinking about now going to a neighboring market, right? Uh, not to start off by bringing their entire team there, but to work with local uh, expertise that can help them set up uh, their presence in the market. Uh, and, and we also talk the talk. So for example, we just launched our office in, so we, we are based in four countries in Southeast Asia. Thailand is our headquarter, Malaysia and Singapore. Malaysia is where I manage and I support Singapore. And we just launched January this year in Indonesia. Uh, and the goal there, although we have not hired a, a country head for Indonesia, we have actually launched our products and services there through local partners that, you know, understands the market way better than us. So we've already got customers in Indonesia without an actual office or an actual country head but we are already running the projects there. So, so those are something that we, we truly advocate and a lot of the programs that we offer are designed to, again, uh, upskill and empower corporate talents uh, to be able to look at venture building. And this is what we term uh, intrapreneurship. So what, what are the biggest challenges that an entrepreneur faces and what would be your recommendations to people that want to become entrepreneurs? Um, so I always tell people that uh, entrepreneurship is not for everyone. Uh, and even though I've, I've, I've gone through three sort of like startup journeys on, on, on my own with, with my founders, I don't see myself as a person doing entrepreneurship moving forward. I, after the third time, I kind of learned like, hey, maybe I'm better supporting entrepreneurs and adding value as, a, as an investor uh, than running the business. But my, op my experience in startup has actually given me uh, the operational insights uh, that allow me to then be able to help entrepreneurs. Now, why I say that is because it's not for everyone. For some people, working for founders may be the better fit than becoming entrepreneurs yourself, right? And there are many reasons, like for example, I also tell people, hey, I, I have responsibility as a family man. So I have a young family. I've got bills to pay. 
Um, you know, I, I got mortgages and loans. Perhaps entrepreneurship is way too risky for me, right? I may do better in an employed position, right? But, you know, there's, there's no shame in not going through the entrepreneurship route. You can actually be a very successful early uh, employee of, of a tech company and do really well in there uh, and be entrepreneurial uh, than be an entrepreneur. So I would say that a lot of my colleagues at Rise and myself included are entrepreneurial as in we can solve problems, we understand problems and we can solve them. Uh, but we, are, we ourselves are not entrepreneurs. We are very, very entrepreneurial employees. So again, this is harking back to the, the entrepreneurship uh, uh, theme that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, so you better, you better start thinking if you really want to become entrepreneurs or not. Thank can you I, so much. Can I, can I just ask, uh, is everyone thinking about their entrepreneurship journey? Is, uh, the, for the students here, are you guys thinking of becoming, just, just a hands up will be fine. Uh, thinking about you know becoming entrepreneurs. Yes, I guess the, the, okay. the vast majority want to want to be entrepreneurs. I will. I will actually. So I did an MBA in entrepreneurship from from Otago University, one of the in fact the oldest university in New Zealand. And when I did it, it I was actually enrolled for an MBA. When I talked to the MBA director, they say, "Hey, we are launching this specialization in entrepreneurship. Do you want to consider that?" Uh, because you're working with in an incubator and you're working with startups. And, and I actually, I thought, fantastic, I will actually do that. And, and I enjoyed my time there. I really did. Uh, I learned a, a lot of stuff uh, specifically in, in, in venture uh, investment. Um, but after the course, I also come to a realization that, hey, maybe starting a company is not suitable for me at that point of time. Uh, my thesis was actually in micro uh, venture funding, right? So I had studied models from India, uh, from parts of North, Southeast Asia, and then I was trying to replicate it in a market like New Zealand. So that was my thesis. Um, it was an interesting topic where everyone's thesis were, how do I build this startup, that startup? How do I disrupt this industry? Uh, but my thesis was really odd and in a group of about, I think there was about, 18 of us, I was the only one that was, my thesis was based on the VC, micro VC fund. Um, and, and when I sat down with the MBA director again, and he was saying like, yeah, that's a bit odd because this is the type of thesis you will see from an MBA student, but not an MBA focusing on entrepreneurship. So that, that being said, I think there's no shame if entrepreneurship route is not the right fit for you. It may not be the right fit for you now, but it, it could be as things change, as environment change, as your micro and macro factors change. Uh, so, so you have to ask yourself, you know, before you go on this journey, whether it's the right fit for you um, or not, because you, you cannot jump into an entrepreneurship journey and only be prepared to give it, say, three months or six months or 12 months to try it out. You can't. In a lot, a lot of the entrepreneurs that I talk to, that if you can't commit at least two to three years minimum to this journey, then I think, you know, take a step back, look at some other opportunities because the entrepreneurship journey is, is basically you can only, you must focus 110% on it, which means you have no time to focus on anything else. Sorry to paint such a green picture because this is based on my experience when I was 
an entrepreneur, I literally have no time. I have no social life. I have no time for my family. It was basically work, work, work 24-7 every week for 52 weeks, right? So, so those, those are going to be some of the challenges you're going to face, you know, especially when the times are bad, right? When the times are bad, this is kind of like the commitment you have to, to, to follow through with. Uh, again, my apologies for painting, painting such a green picture, but, you know, you know, there are always going to be people who are going to prove me wrong. So I hope all of you guys prove me wrong. No, thank you. It, it's better to be realistic. So thank you so much, Jonathan Lee, for, for this conversation.